Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 24th, 2009, and my guest is Pete Betke of George Mason University. His latest book, co-authored with Paul Dragos-Alajica, is Challenging Institutional Analysis and Development, The Bloomington School. Pete, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Pete, this year's Nobel Prize in Economics went to Eleanor Ostrom of Indiana University. Most people know something about her work on the tragedy of the commons, but as you point out in your book, her work is part of a much larger research project. What's distinctive about those ideas? Well, I think, uh, well, there's a variety of things that we try to articulate in the book, but the big issue, I think, uh, to um, get at this is to look at the power of civil society and self-governing uh, uh, citizenry. What are the characteristics of a self-governing citizenry and how actually do people engage in self-regulation and self-government? Uh, and ex- go explain that in more detail. What, what do well, you mean by civil society? Well, the voluntary interactions of individuals to solve collective action problems rather than to rely on the state. So if you think about the sort of big contrast of, you know, in political philosophy between Hobbes, who thought of social dilemmas could only be solved by uh, contracting with the sovereign, or Adam Smith, who sees the spontaneous order of the market, what the Ostroms are trying to do in all of their work, Vincent and Eleanor and, and their students, is to sort of look at how it is that you can have, to put it one way, Smithian solutions to Hobbesian dilemmas. So let's talk about some of those. What are some of the applications? Well, the ones that, that Lynn is most famous for are issues having to do with common pool resources. And the idea is that there's, uh, you know, a scare, like water or, um, uh, uh, forestries, fisheries, whatever. And, um, and, and that these, uh, um, situations produce a tragedy of the commons. Which yeah, let's, would, let, let's stop there. Although we've done a couple podcasts on this, which, which we'll reference in the, in the, in the links to this podcast. Let's, let's lay out that, the incentives of that problem that Garrett Harden started right. and why was it called a tragedy initially and what did the Ostroms uh, come to challenge? Well, the idea is that when you have a collective access to a scarce resource, no one has the incentives to take into account uh, husbanding that resource effectively. Everyone goes to use it, they overuse it, and therefore destroy the value of that resource. So if you think about it in the uh, one example would be the enclosure laws uh, you know, in England or uh, let's say a common property and I have all my sheep grazing on the land. And if, other people's sheep. And Not other people's sheep. sheep. And yeah. I let all those sheep go on the land. Yes, they eat today, but then the, the grass gets completely depleted and then my sheep don't have anything to eat tomorrow. Fisheries I overfish the environment. It's, Fish it's gets smaller and, yeah, and it, scarcer, and, and so uh, and, and the, the key part is that is that normally, if it were my fishery or my grazing ground, I'd have, have a conservation incentive to stu- of stewardship yeah. to save grass for tomorrow. But if other people are going to eat the grass, the claim is is that people will just act in their own self interest and. Right. 
destroy it. So what Harden did in his – Garrett Harden, uh, what he did in his essay was to juxtapose the idea of self-interest that Adam Smith gives us, which leads to an invisible hand, with the self-interest in the situations of the commons, which leads to the tragedy, right? And so therefore, something other than self-interest has to be relied upon in order to um, take care of this resource and make sure that it gets conserved over time and, and developed. Well, what Lynn does in her work is she she uh, uh, went and studied close up uh, how it is that communities come up with rules to take care of their common pool resource, many times of which the community is surrounded uh, around in that and, and in a variety of, of detailed circumstances from, uh, you know, uh, California uh, all the way to Nepal or wherever, right, all these different areas. And throughout and, history as and well. And throughout history. And what she found was that communities come up with rules even though they are not private property rules which would be the typical sort of market response. Let's privatize the commons, divide it up and give it that, that in those situations where the technology doesn't allow that to happen, it's not the case that these people succumb to the tragedy of the commons, but they instead find rules to govern access to the commons that serve the function that private property rights would serve to allow voluntary solutions to the dilemma. And the and rules so, can be norms, not, norms just, not just what we think of as rules. Right. And so I, I think the one thing that's fascinating about uh, you know Eleanor's work was that she opened our eyes to the what she makes a distinction of rules in use and uh, rules in form. So rules in form would be sort of the legal rules that are set down. But the rules in use are actually how the local community understands the rules and everything like that. So in the commons – Because the law is is never really literally what it says it is. Never really written down like that. And so what you have in in her situation is that – and I would add a distinction called rules in function. So when I look out in the world and see things out the window, what I try to stress all the time is that there's rules in use, there's rules and form and there's function that rules have and that in these situations of the commons when we don't have the technology to, to parcel up the land say for example into private plots or the ocean or, or the o- yeah. whatever right what we get is we get rules in use which limit access which serves the function right it limits access and it forces accountability that serves the function that a private property would even though we don't have private property in form what we have is collective ownership in form, but but actually the rule in use is a collective – I put in quote marks around it. You can't see that. Yeah. <laughs> but collect, collective yeah. only in the sense that um, it doesn't give the right to Russ Roberts or to Pete Betke. What it does is it gives the right to the community, but Russ Roberts and Pete Betke have limited access to the resource and we're accountable for the way we use the resource. So to give an example of something like this on, on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, right at the same time that Lynn won the Nobel Prize, there was an episode in which uh, Larry and uh, Chris Christian Slater were at a party at, at uh, uh, Mary Steenburgen's house, and uh, and Christian Slater was sitting at the uh, buffet line and ate up all of the uh, caviar, which is a common property. Right. Nobody has ownership of the buffet line. <laughs> and Larry comes party. up to him and says, 
you're violating the rules and there is no sign up. And Christian Slater says, there's no sign up here. There's nothing like that. And he says, but there's a rule that you're not supposed to have, you know, just sit there and and eat all the the caviar. And it's like, you know, a light goes off in your head while you're watching TV and you go, bing, 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 Lynn Ostrom in the common pool resource. It's right there. And that's the kind of thing that she talks about across all kinds of walks of life and, and, and different cultures and whatnot is that people come up with these ideas of having rules which limit access and, and, and point accountability to people even though we don't formally have the legal rule of private property rights. And, and of course, I like the Curb Your Enthusiasm example because shame, guilt, uh, and disassociation, right. shunning right. of people who don't keep the implicit rules – is one way that people voluntarily enforce the the rules that are not written down that are that are very uh, amorphous but are very real in most settings. Right, and in this episode, Mary, Larry goes and tells Mary, and Mary goes and and has Christian leave the party, oh, right. <laughs> which is, yeah, which is the shame, yeah, yeah. ostracism, yeah. which is the idea of limiting access. So it's not it, Lynn's Lynn's work, which focuses on community based rules, doesn't embrace. Uh, collectivism, though it is a collective choice. And a lot of people get confused about this because it is rules in use, rules in form, and then the function of the rules. And so they get, you know, they get confused by the old language, which is a broader theme that Vincent has always stressed is that our language can prevent us from understanding what's really going on in the world. I want to talk about that for a minute because I, you used a language just now, which I think is extremely important. You talked about voluntary uh, collective action. And I think so much discourse is marred in today's political and ideological discussions in a, in a debate between the state, the government solving a problem versus, quote, the market and the presumption – and it's treated as a as almost like the law of gravity. Collective things have to be done through the state because that's, that's what the state is. And as if the state makes, quote, a collective decision, which often, of course, it doesn't. The state is an emergent system of political actors acting in often and upon always in their own self-interest, and the outcomes are not the result of collective choice. Uh, and, and in fact, in, in contrast to that, when we band together voluntarily with the right to exit or the right to expel, uh, we solve lots of, quote, collective choice problems through voluntary association. Yeah, I think that that, uh, one way to understand both Vincent and Lynn's contribution um, is to see them as um, pushing for overcoming this stale debate, um, which informs so much of uh, post-World War II social science and the idea of the rule of experts and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, for people like me, I tend to emphasize their critique of the idea of a unified state and their issues of, of uh, polycentricism, uh, which we'll talk about when it comes yeah. to cities and whatnot. <clears throat> but I think for people that are not like me, they would tend to emphasize this community-based rules and the idea that you can't just rely on private markets or whatnot. But it's because of a certain caricature of what the market is that that debate exists. And part of what they're doing is making us rethink what we mean by state and also market. And I, and I like your characterization much better. I mean, I think the biggest way to understand what both uh, Vincent and Lynn are doing is to understand that they're trying to take Tocqueville's 
research program or the way Tocqueville decide, describes society and democracy in operation and bring it to the new science of administration for the 20th and 21st century. And in that, you'd make this divide between civil society, which is made up both of nonprofit and for-profit ideas, and the uh, state-led action, and you see the relationship between it. So markets are, in their world, embedded within a larger civil society set of supporting institutions. And so... If you think about it, what I said before about these Smithian solutions to Hobbesian dilemmas, the way in which the Smithian solution works is through the, the obviously the sort of self-directed behavior of individuals embedded within civil society organizations, some of which are, are market institutions, others of which are your churches, your community groups, your bridge club, whatever, that your actually work, your, your neighborhood association, that have these rules in, in which we live by and govern our daily life uh, that direct us in one direction rather than the other. And that, that leads to the idea of institutional analysis and, and all those things. So, you know, the way that I uh, – why I think Lynn is such a powerful thinker is if you go back to her presidential address at the APSA, American, Amer Amer American Political Science Association, she titled it. Now this is when was this? Roughly early '90s, I think. I mean, I might be wrong about that. Maybe, but in the '90s, I think. I can't remember the date right off the head. But the title of the paper is uh, a behavioral approach to the rational choice theory of collective action. Now that doesn't roll it's three, off. It doesn't it's roll three off. things that people don't associate going together. Right. Really and so cool. what's fascinating about it is she wants to have humanly rational choosers. So as she's put it to me one time, you know, rational choice as if the choosers were human. So with all their foibles, belief flaws, systems, yeah. all those flaws like that. And yet at the same time, sort of explain markets or the outcome of spontaneous order as this complex phenomena. And the question is, how do you go from the individual with his foibles and whatnot to this, you know, collective reality of a spontaneous outcome. order? Yeah. And it's through these various institutions, not the cognitive capabilities of, of man. So, you know, uh, before we, the podcast started, we were talking about the Freakonomics thing. One way to think about, you know, what Lynn is part of is a movement called Stupidnomics, which is we start with agents who are not imbued with all the rationality of the world. They, they, all the knowledge, they all, the all the knowledge, everything like that. But somehow they stumble upon because of the ecology within which they operate to solve very social, you know, vast social dilemmas that no state or lawgiver could be able to solve from on top, but they do through the interactions of, of uh, th their behavior with their neighbors. But, you know, behind that is, and by the way, Vernon Smith, in our podcast, uh, I think it was the second one we did, said something I thought was very deep, which is, you know, he, I think Vernon sees himself very much in, in that enterprise right. as a behavioral economist where markets are correcting institutions, emergent institutions are correcting and restraining our human flaws or sending us signals right. about what we ought to maybe be doing differently. Um, but I, I want to, Talk about the Hayekian aspect of that, which you did not mention, which is implicit, I think, in 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 Eleanor Ostrom's work, and maybe explicit in parts, but not in that recent description. So people are flawed; they're doing the best they can under the constraints of their imperfection and of both cognitive ability and knowledge and information. 
and the outcomes turn out much better than you'd anticipate or that could be designed from on high because institutions – and that's a very vague word I want to focus on – or norms or rules help them pull together their information with others in a way that is – could not be designed. And I think in the background of that presumption is competition among rules and norms and institutions. So there's a presumption in the background that the norms, rules, and institutions that emerge are better than just random. Uh, that and, and this is – I think where does Hayek write about this in, in – somewhat in, in law legislation and liberty I think mostly, which is a very – I found a very difficult – um, book, not so much to read, but, but but a difficult book to absorb because I had trouble distinguishing between when he was talking about the way the world is versus the way it could be versus the way it ought to be. Mm-hmm. But the way I understand Hayek is that, and and you can, this goes back, of course, to to Ferguson and and who pre Adam Smith right. talked about invisible hand that institutions are through competition and through tr- the, the traditions that we have. You don't need all the caviar at the buffet table. That rule, which is not written right. down anywhere, is the result of endless trial and error by religion, culture, civil society. Start, what, is that a good way to – do you think that's the right way to look at it? Well, yeah. I mean certainly in Hayek's rendering, that's the case. I do think that in uh, Vincent and Lynn's case that they are very um, – in their detailed case studies – they're more focused on the way the system actually operates than the normative aspect of whether or not that is um, better in some meta sense. What it is better than is what the public administration community was trying to impose, for example, in cities in the 1950s and 60s or the uh, pub- uh, or the development uh, community was trying to impose uh, on less and less developing countries in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. You know, and so what what uh, you know what they do is they're comparing it to this other stark rule by experts rather than the common wisdom of the people. But they don't make this meta argument. Vincent does in a book that I uh, think is. Phenomenal, actually, um, but that's different from Lynn slightly. But Vincent has a book called The Meaning of Democracy and the Vulnerability of Democracies. And in that, he uh, sort of talks about what it takes to be a self-governing citizenry. And part of the joint project of the workshop in um, you know, political theory and, and public policy is at, at Indiana. The workshop that the Ostroms have run, part of their whole agenda, both educationally and research-wise, is to, in fact, contribute to this idea of creating a self-governing citizenry, which would then enable a more self-governing society, which would have normative you know, byproducts. Hayek's argument is slightly different because it's both a philosophical anthropology argument. You know, we adopt, we, you know, we don't have, we didn't adopt rules because of reason. We got reason because we adopted rules. That goes back to our pre-hominid existence, you know, when we were tribal and then, you know, then we come up and then we have these rules today. And then there's, you know, vague notions about the competition over rules and, you know, whether or not Hayek suffers from a Panglossian fallacy. I don't, I don't believe he does. I don't think he's necessarily just a functionalist, you know, in, in, in philosophical anthropology, but there is a functionalist aspect. Private property does do something or what he calls several property does something. And I think, 
you know, in that regard, uh, you know, Lynn and, and Vincent are contributing to a broader project in spontaneous order studies, a Hayek of whom might have been the guy who in modern times set that research program and they're very much in it. I mean, that's why, you know, in 2000, you know, m- many years ago now, we, we uh, sponsored a conference to honor Lynn and Vincent for their lifetime achievement from the Fund for the Study of Spontaneous Order. It led to a special issue of the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization. You know, Mercatus gave them, Mercatus Center here at George Mason, you know, gave them award at the same time. And so, you know, our association with, with Lynn and Vincent as George Mason's association, because they were founding members of Public Choice Society, go all the way back, you know, for for uh, you know several decades. Um, so it's, uh, um, but you know, I see them as being very much a part of that. And I, and just like Vernon, as you said, Lynn's argument about a behavioral approach to rational choice theory of collective action should tell everyone she's a rational choice theorist of collective action. That's you know, the political science code words for public choice theory and a behavioral approach means that she wants to sort of open it up to, you know, subjective perceptions, ideology, you know, the errors, these cognitive things, which means she's a Hayekian. Yeah. All right. And so it's, and, and just like Vernon in the ecological rationality idea, um, in his Nobel prize address, he's very much drawing on the Scottish enlightenment of Hume and Smith and then it's modern developer developments in Hayek. And so I think that these all of these individuals are part of a broader project which traces back to the Scottish Enlightenment. And, you know, Hume brought up these issues about things like, you know, how do you solve the, the common pool resource as well? He didn't call it a common pool resource, but, you know, one of his examples is how do you res- uh, set up a set of rules that are, that are credible to be able to handle irrigation system, <laughs> right? Issue, yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, in his whole thing on the treaties of human, a- uh, treaties of human nature. And so I think that, there, this is the kind of things Lynn is doing, and she draws on so many different intellectual traditions, game theory, experiments, public choice, Austrian economics. There's a, a big mix of things that she draws and brings yeah. into her stuff. I thought it was really sad after uh, – in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath at least of her winning the prize that people disdainfully said she's not an economist. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Right, it's, and it, because she's got – you know, mentioned she was she was president of the American Political Science Association uh, – and I think part of the reason uh, – but as you point out, her intellectual enterprise is – it has economics in it and right. it's, it's richer than that, which right. seems to be a plus. You know? right. uh, I think the other reason I think people – some when I say people reacted disdainfully, most of them were students, PhD students who that I saw on the web who didn't know her for work and figured, well, if she's not on my reading list for graduate school, she must not be important. Well, it says something. Typical- it, it says something to us about the nature of economic education at the moment because, um, uh, you know, people like Lynn Ostrom or, or Vincent Ostrom, for example, let's just use Vincent for example. Um, you know, he was a co-author with Charles Tibu. He his whole uh, grounding was in the idea of local public. F- finance. Um, he um, sort of studied the way in which local public goods, uh, public economies were generated. He won the award from the American Political Science Association for the uh, top uh, public administration scholar of the second half of the 20th century. So, I mean, he's a very well-recognized founding member of Public Choice Society and whatnot and, and wrote on a fiscal federalism, which, of course, is a huge issue for today. You know that we're dealing with in 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 uh, the way our fiscal system is structured, 
And, you know, because he wasn't located in an economics department and didn't just write in economics journals but wrote in political science journals and social science journals more broadly and also thought uh, very seriously about the words that we use and the way we communicate ideas and language and so therefore he wrote philosophically – you know, he, he, you know, that work gets sort of dismissed. And same thing with, with Lynn. I don't, I wouldn't say Lynn gets dismissed. Again, she's a very celebrated social scientist. She won the, the Seedman Prize in political economy in like ni- in the nineties. I mean, she's, she's a very, uh, well recognized person, but not recognized by a certain subset within the economics profession. And, and that was a shame. I mean, Stephen Levitt, Wrote a, a word and uh, you know wrote a column and said no I never heard of her and then I said but he actually at least said shame on himself yeah, because no, he right. said you know she was the president of the American Political Science Association I should have known that and she's written these other things and then once people did read her work or get a gist of what she was doing they became very impressed with it as I think anyone is who the level of detail and carefulness of which she goes to address her topics. She's a scholar of the first rate and a teacher, wanna... a teacher of the amazing, uh, you know, just uh, an amazing teacher of economics. Well, that's why, you know, we're talking about the Bloomington School yeah. and part of that influence, of course, is through her students. But it's, um, it's an interesting thing. Her empirical work, and I assume that of her students, uh, is – not traditional empirical work in economics. Traditional empirical work in economics is usually statistical analysis, right. multivariate regression. Uh, she's much more of a case study approach, which again, I think a lot of economists mistakenly look, look down on and, uh, and because it's messy. Well, it's messy and n equals one. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the way that I, I I I wrote a review of a book called Analytic Narratives um, many years ago in Constitutional Poli- the journal Constitutional Political Economy, and I make a divide a two by two matrix, and I have uh, thin and thick description, and clean and dirty empirical work. And what I argue is that you can see the social sciences in this matrix in these boxes. So we as economists we have a penchant for thin description with clean empirical work. And, uh, and traditional, say, like, uh, so anthropologists are thick description with, uh, dirty, dirty empirical <laughs> yeah. work. And then the, the, the off diagonals, um, one of the ones that have, have, have era- uh, arisen in the last 25 years with the cost of computing going down is the idea of having thick descriptions with clean empirical work, which are the idea where the, you know, the right hand side of the equation covers an entire page. You know, and so what are you explaining? I mean, this is kind of really bad statistics. At least if you look at that statistics and compare it to The Economist, The Economist appears amazingly sophisticated. There's no data mining. There's, you know, this kind of thing. But the box that's missing is the thin theoretical description, which I would put in rational choice or the economic model or the economic way of thinking, combined with the dirty empirical work, which is the close-up examination. And the justification, I would argue, for that approach to the social sciences is when there's a disjoint between the rules in form and the rules in use – so that the official data that's collected right. is about the activities of rules and form. But actually, what, there's all this underlying stuff going on, and you have to get access to it. And well, an example of that would be in the, in the IO literature or in the macro literature, uh, people using published prices as the measure of prices, not realizing that there's discounts. That's just right. a trivial example. Or we've talked about this on, on uh, the program before. 
years of education goes into the right-hand side. But of course, right. of say, trying to explain earnings or wages. But of course, a year of education in one school studying one particular subject might be a very different quality than a different school with a different subject. And yet we lump everybody together because that's the way the data show up and it's right. It's not very accurate. And I, and I think that we can, once we start thinking in terms of this disjoint, we see so many different things when we look out the window in the world um, where the official story is not the same as the actual reality of the story. And therefore, if we really want to understand the human dilemma – or the human condition, we need to get access to this other form of data. However, we get access to it. it if we get it through memoirs, if we get it through, yeah. you know, novels, if we get it yeah. through newspaper accounts or, you know, anything like that, we want to get access. So I, I, I was just talking about this in my class this morning and I use the example of, uh, Islamic banking. So, um, great you know, Islamic banking tells you that there's a prohibition on interest rates. Right. But when we anyone studies Islamic banking practices, there's all kinds of ways they get around the interest prohibition. They don't call it interest, but think of how much we would not understand Islamic banking if we just said, oh, they outlawed interest. So, yeah. And the interest, interesting, that's also true of Jewish banking, which also has a similar prohibition and a similar set of market forces that yeah. work to make sure that people could get loans. Yeah. Um, Paul and I have a shared intellectual interest. Tim, uh, my co-author on this book, um, who was a student of Lynn and Vincent's, I should point that out. I mean, he Paul was, he, Paul was a, what, got his PhD with them. But Paul and I met before he went to Indiana to study with them because he was actually at the time a student in Romania. Um, he was one of the student leaders uh, that over that helped overturn the Ceausescu regime uh, in 1989, and um, and so Paul had lived the lie of the Soviet type economy, and I as lived a through the lie through, lived he through did, the lie, yeah, yeah, he, did, he didn't live the lie. So that's yeah. that's that's the appropriate language, right? He li- <laughs> he lived, yeah. And I, um, you know, was fascinated by this stuff in the in the uh, when I was doing my work on the Soviet Union and then the post Soviet uh, regime. Um, and the Ostroms had always created a home for scholars, visiting scholars, and uh, in Indiana, and and uh, they had people that were working on the way the system really operated, rather than the way the official story was told. Yeah. And so I was attracted to uh, the Bloomington School um, all the way back, uh, you know, when I was a student, uh, being and I was introduced to it. See, I knew who Lynn and Vincent Ostrom were when I was a student because my teachers were, you know, Jim Buchanan and Gordon. Tulloch and you know other public choice people as well as Kenneth Boulding and they understood what was going on with their work and pointed us to it because of this importance of the idea of this you know the way things are actually working rather than the way the theory tells you that the system was working or the or the what's written down the, yes the, the and, legislation and so or. it was a rent seeking society, you know, what was going on in the former Soviet Union. So this guy, uh, Anatoly Kaminsky, who they had as part of their crowd. Um, who had as part of their crowd? The Ostroms had as part of their 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 circle. research crowd, their circle. He was studying corruption before anyone else was, the rent-seeking, you know, aspects in the system, the implicit property rights. Just because you don't have official property rights doesn't mean that you don't have any property rights. And so, like, you know, other people that are in property rights economics started to get this idea, too. Yoram Barzell, in his book, The Economics of Property Rights, has a great line in there. He says, the only things the Soviets convinced us of is that, you know, uh, no one owned anything when actually the people who were, you know, in charge of things owned, owned everything. So the myth of public ownership is that there's a distinction between property rights 
in cash flow and property rights and control of a resource. And in these societies, people had control rights, but they didn't have cash flow rights. So what happens when you have, what's the incentives when you have that? And now you start to understand how the system actually operated in practice. So not to go too deep into that, but flip back to like what the Ostroms did in their own work having to do with the way cities operated. And then the idea that, that everyone looked at cities, let's say when Vincent first was starting or when Lynn started in the 60s, and they would look at cities and they would say, oh, those cities are unorganized. There's duplication. We need yeah, to have – It's inefficient. Yeah, it's inefficient. So we need to have a unified structure. So, You're talking – when you say cities being disorganized, you're talking about – Metropolitan uh, areas. All kinds of little uh, bergs and, and – yeah. And townships, rather we should create a giant metropolitan area with one governance structure with now this duplication of city councils. And And St. Louis is the, is the best example of this. St. Louis, the core city is, is very small and it's surrounded by dozens of municipalities that are all part of the greater St. Louis area. Well, I have, when um, the example that I always have is New York City and New York City public schools. Which, you know, it, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know if this is accurate, but this is how the story was told to me when I was a student. I've just sort of stuck yeah. with it in my head, which is that at one time, New York City public schools were among the finest in the nation. And that was when they all had to compete for a tax base among the five boroughs. So there wasn't a central administration of the school system. There was, in fact, very each very right and, uh, on and, paper, and, and there were all these different school districts. And people took their kids, whether or not I'm going to live in Manhattan, Queens, you know, the Bronx, Brooklyn, or out in Staten Island. I'm going to make all this distinction, and they voted. It's kind of a Tibu model. Right, and then what happened was they unified the school system under one giant school system of New York City, and then the schools have gone to the direction that we know that they've gone in. Right, and so. There's a few more things going on I know. probably at the same I, time. But so it I'm, is a stylized story. It's a stylized story. I, I admit that up front. But I think it makes the Ostrom point, which is that when we had these uh, multiple school districts in which they were trying to do it, they would be more responsive to the parents who want to see their kids get you know a good education and whatnot. They would provide a, bu- a better public good. Right through the competition of all those. So both Lynn and Vincent, when they came in and looked at the metropolitan areas, they saw the diversity and the duplication and all those things as ways in which the local community was trying to provide the public good resources that satisfied the voter demand. And where public administration officials came in, they saw, oh, that's a mess. We need to unify it. And so what you have in in their story is a microcosm of the socialist calculation debate because what they tried, what the experts in public administration wanted to do was unify the city. And what they're doing is talking about polycentricism and how polycentricism, that is multi centers yeah. of authority, rather than the idea of monocentricism, that polycentricism is efficient, which brings up the idea of the um, the metaphor of the market mechanism or the spontaneous order. Polycentricism is a term that Michael Polanyi coined and that they used uh, uh, and recognized that Polanyi is a contributor to that. But it's also uh, a term that, that is related to what Hayek is talking about in spontaneous orders. And so the basic idea is, is similar to the idea that people might argue about what's the source of wealth in Europe 
as opposed to China. Why no capitalism in China in the development period was because China or Russia, for example, were under a unified empire, whereas in, in northwestern Europe, you had all these little city-states competing with, with each other. And it turned out that that polycentricism turned out to be the source of economic growth and innovation and all that because you have more experiments to go back to your early example there's more experimentation there's more feedback when you know if you try an experiment it doesn't work people don't want to live in your area so they migrate you know they vote with their feet that kind of thing i just i want to digress a few other places but i just think it's a fascinating thing how the the lure the seductiveness of monocentrism, the seductiveness of, quote, efficiency, that a single – it's an economy's a scale argument if, right. among other things. It's basically, well, we'll just get the best system for everybody. I mean wouldn't it be great? Why do you have all these different systems? Obviously, some are better than others. Let's give everybody the same great system without realizing that which system should be used. First of all, may not be the same for everybody. Because everybody has different – people may have different preferences. But more importantly for me at least, I think the failure to see that knowing what the best is is not obvious. Right. Don't. And then you get on top of that, you get the rent-seeking. So when right. you have the centralization of power, even though in theory it's more efficient, even though in theory it could lead to everybody getting the same great system, in practice it's it, it stumbles horribly because of rent-seeking and the concentration of power and corruption and also the, the difficulties of figuring out what the best system is. Mm-hmm. An example of this came up this week. I, I wrote about it. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, I was at a conference on uh, of accountants, and it's just presumed by everybody that we need a single a unified international accounting system with, with of, what, of best practices without people probably being aware that it's – you may not be able to get the best system and so then you only have one and it's not the best one and it's going to have rent-seeking on top of that and corruption and people are going to try to steer it to serve their own self-interest rather than the experts designing, quote, the best system. I think that that's you know, the one-size-fits-all. The anti-one-size-fits-all yeah. <laughs> rubric is where the, the Ostroms are coming under, whether or not it relates to you know um, the uh, urban – Issues. One of the things that's fascinating about it is that at the time that they were writing, there was a discussion of the urban problem. And I think to a large extent what <laughs> they were the saying – Those are the good old days. Yeah, and <laughs> I think to a large extent what they were saying is there's urban problems yeah. and that the local – the wisdom of the local people to solve these problems exceeds the ability of the expert to impose a one-size-fits-all you know, solution. And I think that, that one of the things that's fascinating about Vincent – to me is that he doesn't allow this little slight of of uh you know language that you used before which is that in theory monocentrism works better i think in part of what he's saying is that no you have to really think seriously about what monocentrism would imply and that actually right. doesn't work theoretically right, that's and and what happens <laughs> realistically is that these polycentric systems despite what you think might be inefficient because it's Duplicate. duplication yeah. We actually see as, you know, testing out and new feedback and all these things. And so I think that, that, that common theme about the wisdom of the local people to resolve their conflicts better than an expert from afar goes through their work from the early work on cities all the way to the work on developing countries. And, and in particular, even Lynn's criticism, she, she published a fantastic book a few years ago, um, 
on uh, aid, sustainability, and economic development, which is was published by CETA, uh, the Swedish Institute for Development Assistance or whatever. And uh, and and it, what it does is she talks about the relationship between first and foremost the in the issue of foreign aid. You know the the donor country, the recipient country, and then she introduces this idea of nested games, the game within the game, so that actually in working out this relationship about how to get foreign aid to actually be effective, the levels of games that you would have to be able to solve really calls into question you know, the ability. It's not that, that she's an aid skeptic in the same way that, say, Bill Easterly would be. Um, but what she is, she raises to a level of concern the issues of solving these issues of the games nested within other games that are required in order to be able to allow a expert targeting to work is almost insurmountable as opposed to the common wisdom of the people who resolve their conflicts every day and have been doing it for centuries in some cases and who in fact you know this raises the question of what do we mean by development too because i think to a large extent you know the question is are they living peaceful lives? Are they improving themselves? You know, these kind of things. I think to a large extent, Lynn has seen more order in the local world than what the experts who come in from the outside see. And that's part of what she's getting us to think about. Like, you know, before you go in here, you better pay attention to what actually they're doing. And I'll give you an example. It's not from the Ocean's work. It's from a book by Stephen Lansing, and it's called P- P- uh, Priests and Programmers. And uh, he talks about, um, you know, the green revolution uh, in terms of increasing crop yields. Um, and going into Bali uh, and trying to manage the water tables. And he says, so the water tables were managed originally by local religious dictate. They had these rules. They weren't formally written down, but the way in which they handled everything, you know, was based on that. And it wasn't, quote unquote, efficient from a scientific point of view. Could be better. In Could theory. be better. So in theory. <laughs> so um, Western experts went in, they redesigned it, and the first year crop yields went up. But the next year – they ended up by being uh, having droughts and all kinds of things which they hadn't had in in years because the scientists from the West didn't have the wisdom of the local conditions that was embedded in the religion. Now, I'm not saying that we always acquiesce to local traditions in this sense, but it's that you have to treat those things seriously in understanding how to design the institutions that might actually be better. Right. But you can't. So in this sense, I always tell, you know, my students that the only path to reform is an indigenous one. You have to begin with the indigenous institutions and then work with them to get an institution that would lead to other sort of ideas. Right. And there's there's really I just want to highlight two ways in which that outside expert solution can go wrong. One is, as you said, they maybe didn't have the experience with the drought. They didn't realize that that could happen. They didn't have enough data. Or experience, and so the solution they designed was not fit for that that local setting, that local yeah. setting. Of course, the second is is that they can sometimes impose a set of new constraints, new institutions, and the indigenous institutions respond, or the people respond, and don't implement them the way that the expert right. thought. Uh, and so as a result, uh, it doesn't work for that reason as yeah, well. Yeah, I got, I was, I was part of a project with USAID, uh, many years ago. And part of the reason why they were interested in 
in us. Um, this is when I, I they started with working with Iris. I was did some work with with Manser. Uh, it's Manser Olson's Institute, the Institute for Research on the Informal Sector, who also was trying to understand how these yeah. things. And uh, so I was teaching at NYU, and Manser Olson had me coming down there as part of this research team with him, and and doing some of this stuff with USAID. And then unfortunately, he passed away, and um, and so eventually USAID came to our group over here at Mason and wanted to know if we could help them with understanding institutions and economic development. So we agreed to do a series of seminars for them. And the big question for them is they came up with a um, basically a, a, th- a precursor of the Doing Business Index or the DeSoto sort of spiderweb red tape analysis. And, um, and they tried to implement it in a ton of different countries. And they would get people to buy on to the idea of doing a study. They would do the study, show that if they cut red tape, they could improve their economy by such and such, but then they couldn't get it ever implemented. And to, to improve the – to get to rid of improve the, the local, yeah, 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 to get the officials in the local economy to improve Strangely you know, enough, like this. Yeah. And they came to us and they asked us the question like, we don't really understand. We just produced this beautiful study. Showed all the benefits. Showed all the benefits of reducing red tape, but they won't reduce the red tape. What do you think the, the deal is? What's going on? And this is what Lynn was talking about in terms of this relationship of this nested game. Yeah. So you have to understand the indigenous incentives. incentives. Yeah. And I, you know, of course, you just nailed it, you know, which is that, you know, the local officials had no incentive they're to. Doing, or they're doing great. This they're doing great. Them, this possibly. is how they pocket their money. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that, that uh, she brought up, she highlights a lot of that stuff. In her work, and she also, as I said before, she's very eclectic in the use of tools that she draws on to try to understand the reality there. So she has she's done experiments in the field. She has done case studies. She's done all kinds of things. She uses game theory. She uses public choice, and so she's very much a very eclectic social scientist uh, across who then draws on a variety of traditions to try to under unearth this local the ability of these local individuals to resolve social dilemmas and how we can build from those social dilemmas out to maybe solving broader problems scaling up yeah i want to digress for a minute because uh this conversation uh there's two crucial things i want to make sure we get to one is is quote a digression but it's not really and it's uh it's just another version of, of this story to some extent it comes back to your observation about my use of the phrase in theory you know, you could call it in in inadequate theory or in blind theory or in imperfect theory. It would be the case that. So I was thinking of an example I don't think we've ever talked about on the program, which is strange because we're big fans of Ronald Coase here. But I'd like to get your take on this article of Coase's, which is one of my all-time favorites, uh, on the lighthouse and, and its analogy to some of the – its analogousness to some of the things we're talking about. So – it was believed for a long time that lighthouses had to be publicly provided because the claim was, and this is, I think, was in Samuelson's textbook, a textbook, right? Or yep. was it in his was it in his fifty one article? On well, it goes goods? back, I think, to even further, like Sidgwick and other people who have talked about. So, so the claim so was yeah. is that you couldn't have a private lighthouse because, let's say, you're in a boat and you're you're heading towards the, the rocks or the shoals or the dangerous place. And there'd be what you could call the holdup problem. The lighthouse guy could call out in a in a booming uh, voice through a megaphone, you know, if you don't pay me a lot right now, I'm going to turn the light off. 
Now, of course, one issue would be he could then exploit you. The second issue would be, but what if there's a guy right next to you in his boat and he's paid for it? And he's got to have the light on for that guy. He can't exclude you. It's a classic public goods problem, and therefore private ownership would always be inadequate. Private lighthouses could never survive. So what Coase came along and showed is that you didn't have necessarily private lighthouses again in the market versus the state. You had voluntarily – sailors got together and they built lighthouses because they didn't want to crash on the rocks. They found ways to solve the problem. Isn't this a very similar story? No, it's, it's, it's identical. I mean one of, the, you know, one of the things I tell all my students when we're trying to get them to do field work is, in, in, in economics is um, that um, history defies – what logic dictates. I said, always have that in mind. History defies what logic dictates. And they, you know, you scratch your head. And what I mean by that is that <clears throat> pure economic theory tells us that something's impossible, but history shows that it actually took place. So now, so asking, now the question is, what happened? What happened? <laughs> or what the How way, or the way the Kosian revolution sort of took place in law and economics was, in, in this sense, is where are the deals? So think about Stephen Chung's paper on the fable of the bees, right? Which that we was talked about with Mike Munger. Or yeah, there was another. That was another case where people said, "Oh, they could, ha- they can't, can't happen." Can't, can't. But yet we find out there's all kinds of contracts that people sign. And the same thing with the lighthouses. You know, they ended up by doing where the harbor master, you know, had you know charge fees or whatever. I think is the way that Coast talks about the deal, right? So it's like the way that you come into the harbor and it becomes, you know, the, so the lighthouse is a, is a bundled good with other services that allow it to happen. And so I think that as long as we – or what you could call tying arrangements, right, uh, overcome these sort of uh, public goods aspects. Yes, I mean Lynn's work is really about how it is that individuals resolve a dilemma which in the strictest understanding of the theory would say it couldn't take place. But yet they somehow find ways to get to re- contractually – contractually in quotes again around it either through the norms – or the actual rules that they voluntarily agree to. So th- this raises a question which I, which I haven't heard discussed, which is you mentioned a Panglossian perspective. It's tempting to say often, well, you know, the the market will figure it out, or a, better again, I think a better linguistic phrasing would be people will figure it out. They'll they'll develop norms. They'll figure out ways to solve this problem. And we see many times that does happen, contrary to what the sort of I call the naive or standard theory suggests. And yet we don't want to go too far the other way and say, and therefore there will be no problems with externalities or therefore there will be no problems with common property. Obviously there are cases where common property, these norms don't work. They don't come to the aid either because they're barriers that are state-imposed or human limitations or the nature of the problem is such that that the mechanisms that normally work don't work. So I don't think I want to just put as a, a caveat to all of our conversation. Uh, I, I wrote a paper a long time ago called "The Tragic Comedy of the Commons." So th- there's a, a temptation to say that these uh, that it's a mixed bag. Right. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, we can I can think of a lot of common property problems where we have not overcome them. Uh, we haven't really solved the fishery problems of the, of the ocean right now. I think the, in many ways the and those solutions are often state-imposed and imposed badly. Uh, we haven't solved the traffic problem in American cities. Uh, and I think the the naive application of theory is, well, we just price the roads. That doesn't work so well because it, it often will harm the drivers who have to – or normally are going to be part of the political process and you've got to get their buy-in. So 
talk about what you think the uh, any limitations to these uh, well, historical <clears throat> solutions. And what the Ostroms talk about. I don't know if they talk right. about it. Right. No, well, I think that this this moves us a little bit from from Eleanor's work to Vincent's work about what are the preconditions for developing a self-governing citizenry because certain capabilities – so yes, it's true that the common wisdom of the people oftentimes outdistances the expert opinion of the public administrator or the statesman or whatever. Um, but the question is how scalable – is all of this. But I think what Lynn and, and, and Vincent are committed to is getting the preconditions of living a truly democratic life. This is the words that they use. And they don't mean by democracy voting. They mean something broader about what it means to – in relationship between you and I, right, um, and, and what that means to live a democratic life. And Vincent has focused a lot on this idea of what are the preconditions that make that possible of the citizens – that are capable of living that kind of truly democratic life. In that case, it goes back to the Tocqueville project. And part of what his argument is in the meaning of democracy and the vulnerability of democracies – About Vince now, not Vincent, Tocqueville. Yeah. yeah, is to argue that like Tocqueville, that a sickness in the government right, can breed a sickness in the people, meaning that the problems of the government's public choice problems – can feed over into the people that drain them or atrophy their skills to actually be yeah. and so as he says you know this is all about the the uh the 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 you know cares of thinking and the troubles of living right and and that you know we need to have a citizenry that's capable of doing that and so to go back to your issue uh that you raise which is a very real one that's that we have social dilemmas around us all the time the important thing for the economist or social scientists to do is to not assume them away but also not to assume them away not – Some kind of automatic so, solution. That, oh, so we'll just like, get the government to fix it. Right. So it's both sides. So there's a market romanticism and then there's a government romanticism. So just saying like, you know, I tell all my students that are prone to the market romanticism, I said, this is a Jedi mind trick. You know, there are no externalities. No, actually there, there are, are externalities, but it's precisely because of those inefficiencies that that – throws up opportunities for others to find creative solutions for that. And I think that that's what we have to open ourselves up for as positive social scientists is, is what Hayek means by the, the mystery of the mundane or what Hayek refers to as a miracle. And he says, I want to shock you into thinking about the miracle of the market. And I use the term miracle because I want to shock you to think about it. I, I often talk about the mystery of the mundane, the, the everyday life that people live. And then what we do is we see how it is that that comes about. But it's actually amazingly complex that they pulled this off, not, uh, you know, something so simple. Right. And, and we want to open ourselves up as social scientists to understanding that. Once we understand that, I do think there's normative implications because we see such amazing wisdom and power in voluntary choices that is absent when the state comes in to do things and the capabilities that individual have, the ruggedness of individuals that is developed by their ability of taking on the task of, you know, thinking hard about issues and, and living hard and trying to solve their dilemmas that Ostrom is trying to get us to get at. And I, and I think that that's a really important part of their project that is expressed by Vincent, but also very much part of Lynn's DNA. Um, let's close. I, I want to talk about an issue that, that we didn't get to that came up a few times in my mind as you were describing 
and and I've read some of this myself, the vast range of solutions that societies voluntary that individuals come up with through voluntary association, cultural norms, um, explicit rules, uh, contracts. Um, so th- sometimes they use the state through the contractual opportunity and have the state enforce the contract. Sometimes it's a cultural rule. It's a norm like don't eat all the caviar at the buffet. Sometimes it might be a religious stricture that comes to be accepted by a, by a particular subgroup within the society. These are all different ways that that emerge. These are solutions that emerge in response to dilemmas as you talk about. There's a tendency in recent years I think for economists – Try to create these from scratch, and you could call it. I'm going to say in the laboratory. I don't mean literally in the laboratory. I mean in the on the yellow pad. Um, and and you used a language that I think is very common to these economic enterprises early on when you were talking about. It. You said these norms or these rules, these institutions mimic the incentives. These rules in use create rules in function that mimic the function of say prices or of proper private property. So there's been, I think, a bit of um, I'm not going to call it a fad, a trend, uh, uh, an interest in economists in designing these institutions rather than having them emerge. It seems to me they haven't turned out very well. And one reason they haven't turned out very well is they do get put through the meat grinder of the sausage factory and they get tweaked and and changed by special interests. I'm thinking, for example, the California energy market, which was a disaster that was used uh, ideologically to indict markets, yeah. markets, uh, private property, um, which was weird given that I think wholesale prices were constrained. There were price controls <laughs> in, in the market. And so it wasn't free. It wasn't. De- it was called deregulation, but it wasn't much of a deregulation. We see a similar attempt in cap and trade discussions uh, that economists, you know, propose the quote right tax uh, in the idea that this is going to recreate the market forces. And yet, despite my skepticism, there have been apparently some successes with sulfur dioxide controls, where you might call a pseudo market. I, I really don't like it when people call it. A market solution. So, give me your thoughts on that. Now, those that enterprise fits in with the discussion of the, the Bloomington School. Your last uh, point, I would just say that a blind squirrel catches a nut every once in a while. <laughs> um, I do think that there's a there's something to be learned from mechanism design theory. Important lessons about incentive compatibilities and whatnot like that. But I do think that it succumbs, or the whole enterprise succumbs, to the one size fits all kind of approach in the end. What you're trying to do is find the system that is incentive compatible and, and and go from there. Whereas what I think Lynn is getting at is a striving for an appreciation of what she calls institutional diversity. The vast number of ways in which individuals in their in the in their communities can resolve social dilemmas voluntarily you know, and and the way in which they do that, and so I think that in her work, there's issues of credibility. There are, so the incentive compatibilities are there, but we find ways to resolve these issues in a multiple multiplicity of ways. What the problem is is the one size fits all uh, approach to that, which then constrains experimentation. Um, and so, in some sense, it goes back to an argument that Hayek made in the Road to Serfdom, in which he said it's never a debate between planning or no planning. 
It's who and whom is going to do the planning, right? It's not, you know, and, and so what we don't want to have is one unified plan. What we want to have is a multiplicity of plans. Well, that's a different debate and a different error, but I think in a large part what Lynn is talking about in her institutional diversity is the same thing. It's, it's individuals resolving these issues through a variety of ways um, that they find and then opening us up to that question of, you know, what is happening and why is it happening? This is pure enterprise in the in the science. And so in this sense, it's like she's an embracement of the curiosity of the social scientists to how humans solve their issues in the world and not the idea of the uh, of the uh, scientist as an, as, as an engineer whose job is to solve the problem. So it's a different perspective that she has. The second aspect of that work is that there is a normative bent in this idea of what I was referring to before as living a democratic life. What they're trying to do is educate citizens so that they can become informed participants within a truly democratic life. And that democratic life is a decentralized, self-governing life. And so what does that all entail, both institutionally and in terms of our capabilities and what we're willing to shoulder in our responsibility as free and responsible individuals? Um, you were at this, uh, at, at this uh, meeting recently where I, I sort of summed up our current situation. I said, look, we want to have a society of free and responsible individuals very Liberty Fund-like, uh, free and responsible individuals with a market economy based on profit and loss. If we live in a society where individuals are given freedom but don't have any responsibility and a market where you allow profits but socialize the losses, why would you expect things to not go haywire? Mm-hmm. And that's tr- that would be the kind of experiment which then gives us a bad name because it was done in the name of profit. It used prices to pull it off. There seemed to be private property rights, right? But we didn't actually have the responsibility and the negative side of things to discipline behaviors. So you had freedom but no discipline or freedom with no responsibility. In that sense, the system went haywire. And now how do we get that back? It's not that the market was failed. It's that the rules under which the system operated generated perverse outcomes so that were translated through market mechanisms into some very you know unsavory kind of activities. And I think a similar kind of thing is what she's looking at when she's sort of studying up close and personal various different things like I said, from irrigation systems in California to the way we handle fisheries in, in Iceland to, uh, you know, the way that we handle, uh, you know, common pool resources in Nepal or whatever. And so I think it's, 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 it's this question of the lesson for the listeners that are drawn into to sort of Liberty Fund type things is that what they – both Lynn and Vincent contribute to is this idea of the broader liberal notion of, of what it means to – to live under liberalism and what are the preconditions, institutional and characteristics of the individual, the moral fiber of that kind of society. But they're directing most of their work to other political scientists and that explains the language in which they use, the conversation that they're employed in. They're not really talking to um, us. They're talking to other people. And But I, I – you know, the power, I think if you could sum up in one thing, it's the <coughs> – the, the, the anti-one-size-fits-all and the wisdom of the local uh, people to self-govern themselves much greater than the ability of experts to govern over them. My guest today has been Pete Betke of George Mason University. Pete, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Well, thanks, Russ. It's always wonderful to be with you here. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, 
For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.